0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. With a new term underway this week, the U.S. Supreme Court is gearing up to tackle controversial issues like gay rights, abortion, DACA, and health care. Chief Justice John Roberts is at the center of the court. It's his vote that may swing a decision one way or the other. Joan Biskupic, who wrote a biography on Roberts, predicts how he'll handle a charged political climate.
1: I think he's going to go at a steady pace. He's going to be aware of public expectations. You know, he'll start with the law, he'll start with precedent, but I think all these other factors, where are individual justices? Where are you? Where is the country?
0: What is Trump saying? I think all those things will be in the atmosphere. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The rulings the Supreme Court is scheduled to make this term will affect tens of thousands of American voters. With the presidential race now in full swing, all eyes will be on the court, especially John Roberts. In her book, The Chief, Joan Biskupik lays out Roberts' two competing impulses, his strong commitment to certain conservative principles and his concern for the institutional legitimacy of the court. How did he swing on cases involving the Voting Rights Act and Affordable Care Act? How will he vote on issues like Roe v. Wade? Jeffrey Rosen, who's president of the National Constitution Center, begins the conversation, which was held on June 29,
2: 2019. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I think of it as a conversation among two friends who are trying to figure out with you what the chief will mean for the future of the country. Uh, We saw yesterday his tie-breaking votes, both in the census case where he voted with the liberals, uh, not to allow the citizenship question to be added, and the gerrymandering case where he voted with the conservatives to stop partisan gerrymandering challenges. So he is at the center of the court, and he is also the swing justice, and his influence is greater than that of any other chief, I think we were saying yesterday, uh, since Charles Evans Hughes, who yeah. was in a similar situation. I just wanted to begin. One of the many remarkable artifacts that Joan has in this book is a letter that Chief Justice Roberts wrote to the headmaster of the La Lumiere boarding school in northern Indiana when he was 13 years old. And it's written with with absolutely beautiful handwriting, uh, which is reproduced here. And Joan, why don't you just read the letter?
1: You put on your glasses. Oh, you, well, you,
2: can, you can borrow mine. No, sorry, that was not a setup. I should have warned you.
1: I know. No, I, here, I can here. mean, I can
2: read it. Do you want me to read it?
1: Yeah. I'll start. I should know it by heart. I've used it so much. No, no. Absolutely. It's written on December twenty second, 1968. Dear Mr. Moore, the main reason I would like to attend La Lomere is to get the very best education. I know that if I went to an average school, I would do fine. But the challenges at La Lumiere will give me not just a good education, but the very best. And I want not just a good job, but the very best job. And you can conclude that.
2: Well, that was so impressive. You I, know, I, memory. I sort of
1: actually know by heart. And the That's cursive amazing. is beautiful. At this point, he's in a, a, a Catholic school as an eighth grader, and he's got that nun's cursive down. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> But it, what it says, and the reason I think yeah. you were so impressed by that letter, and I remain impressed by that letter, which I found, by the way, under glass at the La Lumer Library in uh, Laporte, Indiana, Indiana, is because it shows how earnest, how driven, and how focused on the future he was. He didn't want just a good job. He wanted the very best job. He didn't want to be an associate justice. He wanted to be the chief.
2: All expressed in perfect handwriting with such drive and diligence and determination. Tell us about his parents. Everything comes back to mom and dad. And he uh, told uh, you that he developed uh, from his father a sense of the importance of compromise. Uh, Tell us about what is that. That's
1: right. His father, as you know, Jeff, was a... um He was a steel executive for Bethlehem Steel all his life. And he. the interesting thing about Jack Roberts was that he was rising in the industry at the time that the industry was collapsing. And it was quite a challenge for him with union issues, environmental issues, all sorts of uh, economic issues with uh, competitive steel from overseas that Jack Roberts was struggling with. And so he saw his father, an institutionalist himself, uh, dealing with the unions and trying to broker compromises at a time that was incredibly difficult for the industry.
2: And how about his mom?
1: His mother was very interesting. First of all, his parents kind of married across the tracks in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. His father had English-Irish roots. They had come to America earlier in the 18th century, uh, and his mother came later. She was Slovakian, and she was down in the city. You know, everybody thinks of Johnstown, you know, where the flood was, and his father lived high up on a plateau on a street that I thought was so aptly named Wonder Street, mm. and, um, and his mother was down in the in the tight neighborhoods, you know, where you had churches, but you also had pool halls and taverns, and uh, she never went to college, and she regretted that forever. She she is still living. The father passed away in 2008. But she always regretted not being able to go to college, and she imbued her son with a lot of the dreams. In fact, one of the early stories that an aunt told me was going over to their house for dinner and the mother saying, as they crossed the threshold, about little John Roberts, who at that time was known as Jackie. Jackie got all A's on his report card, and an uncle pulled out a dollar bill. This is in the early 1960s when a dollar bill really meant something and said, All those A's, it deserves a
2: dollar. Wow. Um, a sort of unblemished record of golden success That's from right. La Lumiere to Harvard College to Harvard Law School to the Reagan administration. Yes. Any bumps along the road?
1: Well, I would think the most serious bump that he might have felt was in 1992 when he was nominated to be an appeals court judge by George H.W. Bush uh, to the D.C. Circuit. That's the prominent appeals court that it has been such a proven stepping stone to the Supreme Court. And he was nominated in late January 1982, 1992, I'm sorry. And it looked like he could get a hearing but uh, a man by the name of Joe Biden was running the Senate Judiciary Committee then, and uh, he, he knew a lot about John Roberts, uh, even though John Roberts had been largely under the radar at that point, and he blocked a hearing on him. Liberal activists knew what John Roberts had done in the Reagan administration and blocked a hearing, and, and uh, people with H.W. Bush's administration, some of whom are here, uh, thought, well, George Bush will win. He will win, but lo and behold... Uh, Bill Clinton won, and that really made a difference. And that was, that was quite a blow to him.
2: I interviewed John Roberts while he was not able to get a hearing and paired him with a Clinton nominee who was also not able to get a hearing, who also worked at Hogan and Hartson. And they'd both gone to Harvard, and it was interesting that the, uh, the other guy was kind of... Uh, B- bitter about it. Alan? Yes. Who was it? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. But Roberts oh. was just had a sort of serene sense that maybe it would work out. I mean, he seemed pretty focused on his path and it, and it did.
1: Okay. Let me tell you about that. First of all, he, he projects such a steadiness that has served him. It really has served him. Um, people who close to him said that was a real blow because they, what, what they said was he thought it would define him. Here he had had a series of successful moves. You know, He did undergrad in three years. He had two very prestigious judicial clerkships, one with uh, then Associate Justice William Rehnquist. He had joined the administration, the Ronald Reagan administration, you know, immediately out of these clerkships, everything had done, gone very well for him, and he worried that he would be defined by this setback, that he never got on the court to which he had been nominated. But his closest friend said it was the best thing for him. First of all, it certainly imbued some humility in realizing that some things are out of your control. He met Jane Sullivan during this time later, uh, who became his wife. He had been very much wrapped up in work until that moment. He ends up marrying her in 1996. He also develops what he was really known for, this stellar career at appellate advocacy, if he had gotten on that court, Jeff, in 1992, he would have never had his very first argument in January of. Uh, actually, no, he had already had an he had already had uh, an oral argument in 1989, but he w- and, and he had done it as a solicitor uh, deputy solicitor general. But he wouldn't have developed this fabulous career as a private appellate advocate that he had, becoming what people on both sides of the aisle regarded as the gold standard of. Appellate advocacy.
2: And uh, an approach that very much defined his vision as chief when he took over. Can I share, you know that interview I was lucky enough to get with him at the end of his first term. Yeah. Let me just, can I summarize for the group some of the high points and you can tell me whether you thought it was... uh, whether it played out or not. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I was writing this uh, book for a PBS series about the Supreme Court. Yeah. It had the incredible creative and radical title The Supreme Court. <laughs> and and Roberts is a PBS fan, so he agreed to sit down with me. And this is at the end of his first full term as right. chief. And it was, you know, we're sitting in his inner office and he's laying out his vision for what kind of chief he hopes to be. And he said... I'm concerned that my colleagues are acting more like law professors than members of a collegial court. I'm concerned that this is a polarized country where Congress and the presidency and the people seem to be at loggerheads. And I think it's bad for the court and bad for the country when we have five to four decisions around polarized lines. I'm going to make it my mission as chief to embrace the model of John Marshall, the great chief who brought his colleagues together around narrow, unanimous opinions, That shored up the institutional legitimacy of the court, Robert said, at a time when it was being threatened by the president, who who worried that he would disobey the court's orders. And Robert said he would try to persuade his colleagues that it was more in their interest to be unanimous most of the time than five to four and risk losing. And he said, I don't know if this will work, but this is my vision, and I think it's really important for the country. Um, And then finally, he said, I hope when people go back to my decisions and look at them, they will see a concern with institutional legitimacy suffuses most of them. So that was the vision. Um, Was he earnest about it, and how has it played out?
1: Okay. I would say he himself probably felt very earnest about it, but it played out with very mixed results. You have this interview, and within a year, he has written an opinion in the parents-involved school integration case that doesn't seek consensus. He breaks off from Justice Kennedy, who was the fifth vote to strike down two uh, plans to keep school districts integrated in Louisville, Kentucky, and Seattle, Washington. Um, it, It was a 2007 decision, and what was striking about what the chief did there was that he did not compromise with Justice Kennedy for a unified majority opinion, Rather, he wrote separately about his vision for the effects of Brown v. Board, which was much narrower. And uh, Justice Kennedy called him out on it. Justice Kennedy even dissented from... Not dissented. He concurred from the bench, saying, I do not believe the vision that John Roberts is putting forward here. So I use that as an example where he, for certain priorities of his on things like race. He's very much against racial remedies. Certain uh, priorities that maybe might have lingered from the Ronald Reagan years, he is not compromising. But I do have to say, Jeff, he certainly has tried to be more of an institutionalist and bring his colleagues on the right and left together. But it's not consistent. It's just not consistent. And uh, I think that the baseline of what he's trying to do is reflected in what he told you, but it doesn't
2: always happen. So the two great competing impulses that you identify in this yeah. book so well are, on the one hand, his strong commitment to certain principles that he will not compromise. That's and right. he told me, too, you know, there's, I have certain views, strong views, that I, yeah. I don't believe that I can abandon. And on the other hand, this concern for the institutional legitimacy of the court. So our job in the time that remains is to help understand when the institutionalist will triumph over the conservative uh, visionary and what that means for the future of the Constitution. So, um, there were, let's talk about the early cases before the healthcare cases where he did achieve unanimity and I guess you could say there were a few but not all that many. There was the Early version of the Citizens United case where he sort of ducked the question on technical grounds, but then a few years later, he joined Citizens United on five to four grounds, and Justice Scalia called the earlier ducking of the question faux judicial restraint, which was fighting words on the court. But was that just te- te- temporizing? So his critics just say he's kind of just biding his time and then going There
1: is something about his approach that does feel like it's biding his time. He moves incrementally. And I think it, an excellent example of this, and it, it did play out a bit before uh, the health care ruling and then culminated a year later, and that is on uh, the Voting Rights Act, where he first, in 2009 wrote an opinion, uh, drawing almost a full majority of the court, saying it's not time to curtail uh, a certain provision of the Voting Rights Act, which had required states with a history of discrimination at the polls, mostly in the South, to get any electoral changes pre-cleared by the Department of Justice. And the chief has never liked that provision. But in 2009, he did not vote to change it. He said, you know, things have changed in the South, But we're not ready to change it yet, so it was a a baby step of sorts. And then we see in 2013 where he uses language from that 2009 opinion to write Shelby County versus Holder, which drastically curtailed uh, the reach of Section 5, the uh, preclearance provision of the historic Voting Rights Act, and immediately led to states to enact voter ID laws, change redistricting lines. You know, so that has had a lot of consequences but it is an example of what Justice Scalia might have called, uh, I think the phrase was faux-judicial minimalism, uh, hmm. that he... <laughs> Even worse, that's
2: yes. absolutely outrageous. I'll show you. Know,
1: you. Yes, right. And uh, he, I, at the time, I was interviewing Justice Scalia a lot in those years, and he was like, I love that line. You know, he was always prou- <laughs> proud, proud of his lines where the chief would never admit to be, you know, kind of... Bursting his buttons over something. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's so you never see the complete picture of what he's doing. And that's the thing that has been... It was always a challenge to me of, you know, is what I'm seeing what I'm getting? And so it's, it's, a, it's a patchwork. I, I relied on the interview you did in 2007 a lot because I knew that was his aspiration. Yeah. That was his aspiration. But it, it hasn't been completely a reality.
2: And yet, when the first dramatic test came and the whole country expected the court to strike down the Health Care Act by a 5-4 to four vote, Roberts, in a remarkably dramatic change of mind, having initially voted to strike down the health care mandate, yeah. voted to uphold it. Tell us that story and what did it say about his commitment to judicial minimalism when it really mattered?
1: Well, what I discovered uh, in reporting the book that he actually switched votes twice... Uh, He switched not just on um, the individual insurance mandate, which we were all following. That was the the linchpin of the Affordable Care Act. But he also switched his vote on the provision that was intended to expand Medicaid uh, to a a larger group of people right at the poverty line. And I, you know, it's interesting, just as a little aside, everyone, as, as Jeff said, had expected the chief to vote to strike it down. I didn't. But that actually hurt me the day the opinion came down. Because I thought, whenever he was like, oh, man, he voted he, he voted to uphold it, I said, yeah, but that's where he was going to go. And I kept, saying, I kept saying to my bosses, but we predicted he was going to go that way. And they said, it doesn't matter. Everybody thought he was going to go the other way. So we have to write this story about how he might have switched his vote. And then, indeed, what I found out was that I was actually fundamentally wrong in believing that he would have initially voted to uphold it because he did initially vote to strike it down and then, working behind the scenes, he developed the, the uh, rationale that wasn't based on the Commerce Clause, but yet on Congress's power to tax, and worked with uh, the, those of his colleagues on the right were so angry, and they were like, we are not working with you on this compromise. But Justices Kagan and Breyer, the two justices on the left who are closest to the center, worked with him to, with the final compromise, both on the taxing power and also to then curtail what Congress initially wanted on Medicaid expansion and make it discretionary on the part of the states.
2: It was great reporting and an amazing example of pragmatic compromise giving the liberals what they wanted on the mandate, but giving the conservatives what they wanted on Medicaid expansion. And also
1: keeping the Commerce Clause rationale. Remember he, yes. Yes,
2: which Justice Ginsburg said is like a loaded gun which will rise up to allow the restriction of governmental regulation in the future. So class, remember (laughs) yesterday we talked about restricting the powers of the federal government? That Commerce Clause opinion, let's disaggregate it. uh, Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce, Ever since the 1930s, the court has basically said anything that might have the most minimal impact on interstate commerce, including growing wheat in your backyard can be upheld and regulated, because if you grow your backyard wheat, then you might not buy wheat in another state or something like that. <laughs> uh, and the big question now is, are there limits on Congress's power to regulate the economy? And in the health care decision that all the conservatives joined, including Roberts, they said, yes, there are limits, and the commerce power is not indefinite. So Justice Ginsburg said, it's great that you upheld the mandate, but this is going to really cons- constrict government power in the future, showing the remarkable chess game that Roberts is playing, like John Marshall, allowing the government a victory in the short run, just as John Marshall did in not ordering Jefferson to turn over the commission, while shoring up the possibility of constricting governmental power in the long run. What, what do you think of that as a character?
1: No, I think he, okay, he, he has said, uh, he, is a ver- he is a student of history, He wanted to actually be a history Ph.D. early on in his uh, young academic career. He thought he would become a history professor. Uh, This was in the 70s when a lot of jobs for history professors were drying up, and he pivoted to law school. What what, what did
2: he write his thesis on, his undergrad thesis?
1: Uh, Okay, let me see. That
2: wasn't a trick question, but it was something about the the, the 18th century... Oh, it Tor- was um, or Webster. It
1: Webster. was he, oh, whatever. he did one on Webster, Daniel Webster. Tories. Oh no, no, you're thinking yeah. of the one he did on Lloyd George. That's right. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. He, well, he was. The reason we were struggling about his papers is they were immediately embraced at Harvard. He wrote several papers and won writing awards immediately on British politics and also on um, early American politics. And he was a student of Daniel Webster, great oral advocate. And so he, uh, John Roberts is has taught classes on the chief justices, and he will he has said you he admires John Marshall, but he also says uh, you know you're, you know you 're not going to be John Marshall, but you serious sure heck don 't want to be remembered as Roger Tawney. yeah so, yes. so I think that you know if he uh, if he were to have to be pinned down on which justice, it might be the uh, the great Chief Justice John Marshall, but it could also be uh, Chief Justice Hughes who at yeah. a very polarized time in the 1930s when court packing was a threat uh, was able to maneuver with the Senate to help stop that.
2: Yes. I think what he did in the healthcare case deserves great praise. He did, as what Hughes did, saved the court and preserved its institutional legitimacy uh, in the face of tremendous criticism from his base. Uh, others view it as unprincipled politicking. What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think... I think it was uh, many things. Uh, I know people still go up to him and say, and thank him for it. Uh, It's certainly, when you look at the broader need for insurance reform in America, healthcare reform, and he knew about that. He had represented uh, hospitals and the industry. He knew how hard it had been to pass that law. And if there was a way to uphold something that Congress had passed. He wanted to do that, and I think that was admirable. You know, in the Shelby County Voting Rights Act situation, he did not choose to uphold what Congress had done, but in this case he did. So I do think that he deserves praise for that, and I think he deserves praise for trying not to inject the court at a time, in in an election year, remember it was 2012, This was President Barack Obama's signature domestic achievement. So there were all sorts of good reasons to do what he did, even though it certainly wasn't pretty. And there was a lot of blowback among his colleagues at the time.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Most of the talks you hear on our show come from the stages of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Experience the On the Ground Festival in 2020. The 10-day event takes place in June in Aspen, Colorado, and it's open to the public. Passes go on sale November 13th on our website, aspenideas.org. Mark your calendars for November 13th and experience the Aspen Ideas Festival live. Buy your passes in November at aspenideas.org. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Jeffrey Rosen.
2: So around the time of the health care case, we have some cases where he's infuriated the conservatives, most notably in health care, and others where he's absolutely infuriated the liberals, most notably Shelby County, where Justice Ginsburg, in the dissent that uh, turned her into the notorious RBG, said right. just because it's not raining outside doesn't mean you throw away your umbrella and say you're not getting wet. So do his colleagues, do his colleagues like him?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, and, it was a, and the reason it's a good question is because I was surprised as I started my interviews with his colleagues about some levels of distrust. I think, you know, let me remind people of how he came into this job. He was the youngest Chief Justice in more than 200 years. He's only 50 years old. He is succeeding a man, William Rehnquist, who, despite what you might think about his opinions, his very conservative opinions, was quite beloved by his colleagues. And William Rehnquist had become Chief only after serving for 11 years with, as an Associate Justice. So he knew how to maneuver among them. He knew he knew where the bodies were buried. He knew who was up, who was down. You know how to play to each other. And you know they're like any other group of nine. You know just think of yourselves. You know in your families, in your among colleagues, you have to you have to know how to deal with people. And Chief Justice Rehnquist had built up um, levels of trust. People saw him as a fair dealer, even though they knew how conservative he was. Justice Ginsburg. Uh, just always, to this day, still refers to him as my chief. John Roberts says, I wish he would stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, that's how... And and Clarence Thomas had felt that he could rely on him in his some of his most difficult moments dealing with the media. So in comes John Roberts, who is, is you know, a, a very good guy, mild temperament, uh, very good in structured settings, very witty, smart, has it completely together... But this is a new venue for him. He has not been truly a manager before in his life, and he's dealing with eight others who think they're the smartest person in the room, and they're all appointed for life. And, you know, I think everybody was on good behavior in the beginning, but then after a while, they're like, you know, someone would say, well, you know, I really miss Bill. I really miss, you know, and Ed, you know, So it, I started picking up some of that, and I was puzzled by it at first. I thought, well, that doesn't sound like what I see from the outside because the chief does project such geniality, he's very collegial, he's he's um very well mannered, he's not gruff like Chief Justice Rehnquist was at times. But the healthcare decision crystallized distrust that some of the colleagues had about how he dealt with them. You know, was it was he being an honest broker. And I I, I want to say that I, I didn't know how much to make of this in the book. And I didn't, I did not make a lot of it. It's only on a couple pages. But I say that that opinion and what he did behind the scenes did, as I say, crystallize some distrust, especially from the right, his far right, and confusion from those of his colleagues on the left who might not have fully trusted him. But you know, this is, this is serious stuff. The stakes are very high, and I don't want to make a lot of it. I don't think it has changed votes. I don't think it has changed bottom-line rulings. But do these kinds of relationship issues change who picks up the phone and wants to talk out an issue? Yes. Does it affect sometimes maybe someone whether someone writes a concurrence? Yes. Does it affect little alliances here and there? I think so.
2: So John Roberts, the institutionalist, was most in his element during that period after uh, Justice Scalia passed away when the court had only eight justices. And there, the chief had an incentive to avoid all the controversial cases because you don't want right. to decide abortion or affirmative action by a split court because an evenly divided ruling will have the effect of affirming the decision below and leave the law ultimately unsettled. So that year, he managed to persuade his colleagues not to hear a lot of cases, and I think Justice Kagan has said that that was a year when they were getting along pretty well. What does that say about they, his leadership style? They
1: got a They, with the, the chief, with the help of Justice Kagan, who is quite strategic on this court, and with Stephen Breyer, they, they forged consensus in so many different situations. The chief needed them, they needed the chief, That term, where they went, it was more than a term, they went about 400 days just with eight justices. That showed something. But, Jeff, do you remember what it was followed by? The next term, there were more 5-4 rulings than they generally have, and they were all tilting to the right. Uh, Justice Kennedy, at that time our key swing vote, didn't move over to the left for any of it, and the chief didn't appear to be compromising much That following term. Now, there's so much more going on in Kennedy's absence now, but things are situational. Let me just put it that way it's situational.
2: So, the situation now, when Justice Kennedy retired and was replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, is that the chief, for the first time in his chief justiceship, is the median justice. He is the central guy. He's the first chief to be chief in swing since Hughes. And suddenly he seemed to be voting more with the liberals. I think I don't know if I got those stats exactly right yesterday, but it was something like four times with the liberals in five to four decisions in the past year and a half and the same number in the previous ten years. And the most dramatic cases were the ones we talked about, the census and gerrymandering, but there were also cases where he and Justice Kavanaugh voted with the liberals not to hear abortion cases. So describe the dynamic of this court, which for the first time in more than 10 years really is the Roberts Court, and to what degree will the institutionalists prevail over the conservative visionary?
1: He's taking them one at a time. Sometimes a little bit of patterns emerge. I don't think it was any accident that on the last day of the term he has written both opinions, and one goes slightly one way for Democrats and liberals, and one goes actually with a great stride in the other direction. Uh, that's the cutting off all challenges to partisan gerrymanderings. So I think what I think he's going to go at a steady pace. He's going to be aware of public expectations. You know, he'll start with the law. He'll start with precedent. But I think all these other factors: where are individual justices? Where are you? Where is the country? What is Donald Trump saying? I think all those things will be in the atmosphere. And you know, for those of you who were here yesterday. I was describing the scene in the courtroom when he read first the partisan gerrymandering decision, and it was a slam dunk. He said, no way, we are completely shutting the door to challenges to these extreme gerrymanders that entrench one party in a statehouse over the other. And as I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, wow, so then what will this mean for the census case? Because I'm thinking, how could the man who three times early in the start of this term kept stressing publicly, we don't have Obama judges, we don't have Trump judges, we cannot be identified by our political party, we are always going to look just at the cases, We are you have to see us as neutral. How is he going to se- send two huge cases and the big signal that would conflict with this notion of the institutionalist that you identified back in 2007? How will that work? So, you know, as I'm... Um, scribbling, writing this. And, you know, um, the courtroom is such a wonderful place, and I think many of you have been able to be in it, but the reporters generally sit in first two, the first two rows uh, perpendicular to the uh, the, um, the bench over to the right. And normally I would be sitting there, but because I knew I had to... Um, leave quickly to both, you know, TV stuff, write stories, and then get here.
2: <laughs>
1: I, I was like near, near the back. I was kind of, I could see them, but I was also, I had a good route of egress. And as I'm watching, I'm thinking, and he starts talking about his decision then in the census case, and he's first, as I mentioned yesterday, talking about all the reasons why Wilbur Ross should be allowed to add the citizenship question. I'm not just hearing what he's saying about the uh, census case, I'm thinking, how, does, how is this fitting with what he's done this term? How is this fitting with the gerrymandering? How can, how can this be? And sure enough, you know, two-thirds into it, he suddenly switches gears and he says, okay, all these things that the administration has done survive this kind of scrutiny. It survives the constitutional enumeration challenge. It survives the Administrative Procedures Act challenge. But where it fails is that you, Trump administration, have said the sole reason you're doing that, and he emphasized the sole reason, the sole reason that you want to add the citizenship question is for better enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. And we see that through all, the, um, all that's gone into the record in the lower court, including what's gone into the record, what's sort of beyond the record in terms of discovery, we see that you're essentially lying. He didn't use that word, but that was his message. But Jeff, as you know, the chief is usually reluctant to go beyond the record. Mm-hmm. So this was, a, this was such a, an unusual move for him, but it was exactly in keeping with what, how you characterize the healthcare ruling. ruling. It brought down the partisan temperature. Can you imagine if we had all, you know, by noon Eastern time on Thursday, seeing these two strong decisions saying, go ahead, Trump administration, ask about citizenship. See what that does to the Hispanic responses. See what that does to new, you know, new immigrant responses. See how, how much it distorts the final results of the census. And then also, go ahead and let state houses gerrymander as they want. We are not gonna be in that business. I think that would have been such a strong statement from
2: the court. It's so much in the tradition of Marshall, who is his hero. Mm-hmm. And he's read Gene Edward Smith's biography of Marshall, which I recommend to you. And if you want another shorter Marshall biography, Richard Brookheiser's new book is good. Mm-hmm. But Marshall is willing to twist the law. Jefferson accuses him of twistifications in order to... A wonderful word. Doesn't that sound and, like a modern word? <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's very uh, strong, and, and Marshall countered by calling Jefferson the great llama of the mountain. <laughs> Not clear what <laughs> that meant, true. but it's That's very wicked. Yeah, exactly. yes. it, they didn't like each other at all. No, but, but, no. But Marshall willfully misconstrues the Judiciary Act in Marbury versus Madison so that he can avoid the conflict with Jefferson in the short term, but shore up judicial review in the long term. So does this, tell, this suggests to me that when push comes to shove, in the really important cases that the country is watching very, very closely, on this court, the chief will be an institutionalist, but on a whole series of issues that he cares passionately about, Mm -hmm. from a colorblind constitution to broadly uh, imposing some limits on the scope of uh, regulations without fundamentally stopping Congress's power to regulate the economy, he'll be a conservative. What do you think about that? You
1: know, I think, I think that's a, a, a great example you use uh, from Marshall's time, and, uh, and your summation, I think, is right. Because if you read that opinion, which is the, the, the opinion in um, Department of Commerce versus New York from Thursday, the contortions are many. <laughs> but he gets to a result that is important. A very important result. That could, now, um, as many of you know, several steps have yet to play out. There is a chance that the Trump administration will still get this um, citizenship question on the on the census. It's, it's unlikely, I think, but there is a chance, so I don't want to close the door to that. But it was important for the court to say what we're getting from the administration here is not the truth. And what what has been... Submitted to a lower court judge is contrived. And he used that word. It's contrived. And I think that was a really important statement, especially at this time in America where you just, you know, you don't know what you're seeing. You know, what you see is not always what you get. And there is, you know, it seems like it's very easy for people to just put statements out there that do not have the scaffolding of truth.
2: So... (laughs) (laughs) That's such a gentle way of putting it. <laughs> uh, Marshall would be proud. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's think about what's going to happen on this five to four court uh, for the big issues, including the future of the regulatory state and Roe v. Wade. And then we have to think through what would happen if there's another Republican justice, and it's a six-to-three court. So on the regulatory state, which was so exciting to talk about with all of you yesterday, I was surprised, I guess, or at least it was striking, that Chief Justice Roberts joined Justice Gorsuch's dissenting opinion in the Grundy case, where Justice Gorsuch indicated his willingness to resurrect the non-delegation doctrine for the first time since the 1930s, which would dramatically restrict Congress's power to delegate to the executive the ability to pass regulations. Do you think, and Justice Alito in that case said, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is sitting this one out, but at the right time, I'm ready to make it a five. Do you think that on this configuration of this Roberts Court, the non-delegation doctrine might be resurrected and regulation might be seriously curtailed?
1: I will answer, but let me remind people of something else that you talked about yesterday. Okay, so there the chief is in dissent; his vote didn't matter. Yes. But see how his vote mattered in Kaiser, yeah. a related case on the authority of uh, administrative agencies and you know regulatory power for the environment, for labor, for everything that public safety. Uh, in this other case, where the chief needed to be a fifth vote to stop. Something from happening. He was. So I think, again, pairing these two, when it didn't matter what he said, you know, this strong statement from Neil Gorsuch about um, the perils of the administrative state, he could sign that. But when suddenly the court might have rolled back two major precedents involving deference um, to administrative agencies, he wrote a concurrence joining the four liberals to stop that. So his heart definitely mm-hmm. is in curtailing uh, the reach of um, uh, agency power and regulators. But it's not one of his lifelong, you know, for lack of a better phrase, agenda items, you know, like the way race is. So I think he will tiptoe more on that just as he did,
2: just as he did. That's so wise. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, as, and as you say... In dissent, when it doesn't matter, yes, but if it's going to be the decisive vote, maybe no. What about the future of Roe v. Wade?
1: Okay, this is, <laughs> this is even tougher. Yeah. All right, and I'll tell you why, because this is what, you know, p- people get this. You know, all of you in this room have followed rulings, so if we say, if we use a phrase like the administrative state, you know, you're not, like, thinking, what the heck are they talking about? But, you know, normal people, normal people, <laughs> would be like, what exactly are they talking about? But everybody gets abortion. Everybody understands the 1973 landmark that made abortion legal nationwide. Everyone understands reproductive rights. Everybody understands. Roe v. Wade has become so symbolic beyond just reproductive rights as a litmus test for courts. And um, I have to say for starters, you know, I'll reiter- reiterate what I said about Donald Trump wanting justices like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh who would be more put as a priority more to curtail reg- uh, regulators than to reverse Roe. Now, John Roberts had never voted for any... Um, he's never voted against any abortion regulation on the merits that came to the court. He has always voted to uphold them, whether it be in the majority or the dissent. He cast an unusual vote in February, and that was, with the four liberals, it was a preliminary vote to block a Louisiana abortion restriction from taking effect. Again, it was just a preliminary move, but it was to prevent this law that was similar to a Texas law uh, that he had voted to uphold um, from, from becoming the law. And I know that's a little bit confusing, and it was confusing to us. What sort of single... Signal is he sending that he will at this moment go with liberals uh, on an abortion case. Again, it was incremental. And this, this Louisiana statute is likely to come back to the justices um, next term on the merits. And that will be our first true test of what will John Roberts do? Will he this time around? continue to say that these restrictions on physicians who perform abortion and abortion clinics that they can stand. These are the kinds of regulations that close, shutter abortion clinics. They're the kinds of regulations that make them close because they're, they're hard to meet, they're stricter standards than um, physicians say they need for the abortion procedure. So will he continue that way or he, will he realize that He has to adhere to the precedent that was set in 2016 that said, no, the court is not going to allow that. Now, that precedent was set with the vote of Anthony Kennedy over the dissent of John Roberts, and that will be the first test. Some of my colleagues think that Roe is dead. I, I don't necessarily think that. But then, you know, there is a great argument for if it's overregulated and overregulated, is it effectively dead? And I actually think that is exactly the right question to engage in, especially as Justice Ginsburg would say, abortion is available for people who can fly to another state, travel to another state, have the means to go somewhere. But poor people who cannot travel, they will have a different right.
2: That, that's exactly right. Just, Justice Ginsburg says, as you say, that the greatest effect of overturning Roe would be on poor women who uh, already have trouble getting access to abortion, but it would become even harder. But Justice Ginsburg has said she does not believe that the court will formally overturn Roe under Chief Justice Roberts' although it might chip away at it because of his concern for institutional legitimacy. Now, in the time remaining, we have to address the crucially important question that we teed up yesterday. What happens if a Republican president gets another conservative justice to replace a liberal, and it's a 6-3 to court? Suddenly... Even if Chief Justice Roberts wants to be the institutionalist and prevent five to four rulings along partisan grounds, he's outvoted. There are five strong conservative votes to do whatever they want. In such a situation, would he vote with the liberals just symbolically? Uh, Would he just say, what the heck, and join the conservatives and try to take the opinion for himself and perhaps write it more narrowly? I guess that would be his greatest power. Um, and what is he going to do if the Democrats are in power and threaten court packing and he wants to be Charles Evans Hughes and save the court from the abyss, but he just doesn't have the votes?
1: Okay. I think he's going to be in a position to use every bit of his powers of persuasion if that happens. You know how liberals are all hoping that Ruth Bader, nothing happens to Ruth Bader Ginsburg? I think John Roberts is also hoping that nothing happens to Ruth Bader <laughs> I'm serious, because that, that will do exactly what Jeff said. It will render his his central role a little less relevant because let's just take, for purposes of example, let's just say, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, uh, who's now on the Seventh Circuit, uh, who uh, has spoken against abortion rights in some ways, who has been, you know, quite conservative. She has... Now, we never know what anyone is going to do once he or she gets on the court, so I don't want to prejudge her record, but she has... A mass so far, a more conservative record than even, let's say, Anthony Kennedy or John Roberts, let alone Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, you know, that would, that would bring the weight much further to the right, and it would make someone like Sam Alito the central vote, right? Wow. Right? Sam Alito and Brett Kavanaugh would be more to the center. I'm just saying. You know, so,
2: but there, <laughs> you know I'm just, there's, someone, there's someone in the audience who's going...
1: No, but but I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to say, okay, let's look at the facts of how this would be, because we know that. Let's say, let's just say that Clarence Thomas stays for another couple of years. Neil Gorsuch, who's the youngest man on the youngest person on the court right now, they're both there. They're on the far right. They have not, they have not shown any willing to compromise the way um, Justice Kavanaugh has slightly as a partner to the chief, and Sam Alito has been quite consistent. That vote in. Um, when he went with the liberals, and Gundy was so surprising, but so he's so he's he's over there. Um, so it would be frankly like Brett Kavanaugh or Sam Alito uh, much more than than the chief, because the chief would then be with only three other liberal justices, and you know Justice Sotomayor, Breyer, who turns eighty-one this year, and and Kagan. So we're talking about. A lot of potential here, so you want everyone to stay healthy
2: right, left, and center. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one or two questions. Yes.
1: Can you explain the legal analysis of the gerrymandering case? Do you support it, and what impact will that ruling have on the 2020 election? Well, the district the dist- – she was asking about the, um, the legal analysis behind the, uh, the gerrymandering case – and it was pretty straightforward. He said, you know, this is not a question that it's a, it's a political question, not a legal question. And when the court, you know, some 30 years ago, first opened the door to considering partisan gerrymanders the way it's long considered racial gerrymanders, that it did so tentatively and it never has had a standard for how these would be assessed, whether under the Equal Protection Clause or the First Amendment. So it was not, the justices didn't even get to the merits of how to assess this. The the chief said, we're just not gonna go there. It is not not something that judges should be allowed to do because there is no standard. And yesterday I characterized Elena Kagan's dissent from the bench as quite sad and mournful. And it was because she said, you are taking away a democratic right here, the right of citizens to go to the election booth, cast a ballot and have that be a meaningful vote, not a predetermined vote based on lines that have been drawn based on past voting patterns and you know party affiliation. So it was, it, it was a long time coming for where the chief had been. And um, I'm not, you know, I, I actually, you know, having, I'm much more of a, a, a reporter journalist than a law professor commentator, the way Jeff is, so I usually don't say whether I agree or disagree with a ruling. I, I would just say that it was part of the agenda that he has been on for a while, and that Justice Kagan's uh, dissent was very forceful.
2: One question on the left and one on the right. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Maybe this one's from the right, I don't know Uh, So in the delegation
1: of congressional duties down that case um, Roberts is obviously a complicated
2: individual But I'd like to, what troubles me is the the character aspect of when um, My vote doesn't matter, I'll tell you what I believe But when it matters, I'm going to go some other way How do you describe that as a character? You know, what comes to me is spineless or something How do you describe that?
1: Well, I I don't think he would, uh, I don't think he sees it that way. And I I didn't mean to shorthand it so bluntly to say, uh, you know, he's going to watch to see what it matters. I think that's something that's in the mix. So I think there are several factors. I do think that he initially will look at the law and precedent. He'll look at where the court is at in history. He'll look at the, the atmospherics. He'll look at whether it's possible to go narrow, and this goes to what he said when he talked to Jeff in 2007. If the court can go narrow, it's better. If if he can pluck off another vote, and if it means if plucking off another vote means doing something that he under other circumstances won't, he'll do it. And he has acknowledged that he is voting differently as chief justice than he would as an associate justice. Now, that, to some people, might be um, problematic, you know, and indicative of character problems, but he sees it the way, and I'm sure he sees it the way you see it, Jeff, as rising above, as saying, okay, there are times when I have to set aside what I really would like to do here, or actually, I shouldn't say set aside, I, sh- I have to wait because it's all in good time. He's only 64 years old, which on the Supreme Court is very young. He could serve for 20 more years as chief. And he is the kind of guy who is an all in good time chief justice.
2: Well said. Last question from my right, which may not be yours.
0: (laughs) Talk about the role of faith, because it seems like it's a very Catholic court.
2: That's An t- easy last question. Yeah, and
1: there's a tough one. And I've, I've always, I've tried to resist that question, although I, as I, I say to, you know, I have worked at many places where they say, oh, there you go, the Catholic justices. And what I try to remind people of is that um, all Catholics are not voting the same way. It was, it was William Brennan, who you know was right on board with abortion rights from the start. It was Justice Kennedy who cast a decisive vote uh, on abortion rights and he's a Catholic. Sonia Sotomayor is a Catholic, but you're exactly right. What your, the suggestion behind the question is that our most conservative justices right now, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, um, the Chief, uh, Antonin Scalia was also a Catholic. Um, Neil Gorsuch, who is certainly one of our conservative justices, I believe, is a practicing Episcopalian now. He was raised a Catholic. And he went to Georgetown Prep as Brett Kavanaugh did. Brett Kavanaugh, of course, is Catholic also. So you know, a lot of people look at that dynamic. You know, that we have these Catholics, and then we have the three Jewish members who are on the on the left. It's, you know, it's, I find it a tricky question, but I, I do think that, uh, and the justices themselves will always say they are, not, they are definitely not voting on their faith. Uh, I had many conversations with uh, Justice Scalia on this when I was uh, doing the biography on him, and I do think that uh, there are patterns there, but some of these justices are conservatives very much irrespective of their religious beliefs
2: for helping us understand the man who will determine the future of the Constitution. Please join me in thanking Joan Biskupic. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Joan Biskupic is a legal analyst for CNN. She's covered the Supreme Court for 25 years. Her latest book is The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. She's also written biographies about Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, and Sonia Sotomayor. Jeffrey Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, a law professor at George Washington University, and a contributing editor of The Atlantic. Their conversation was held in late June in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, John Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson.